Welcome to the Legal Download Podcast, a rundown of the latest issues impacting your business from Kelly Drive. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Molly Rao, and I'm a litigation associate at Kelly Dry. On today's episode, we're going to be speaking with two of Kelly Dry's partners, Jamie Nowaday, the chair of the firm's White Collar Investigations and Compliance Practice Group, and Christy Wolf, the chair of the firm's Food and Drug Law and Cannabis Law Practices. They're going to provide answers to frequently asked questions surrounding attorney-client privilege issues that arise during investigations or litigations that are handled on behalf of companies. They're going to share some insight on how to protect that privilege and how to keep third-party communications protected. Thank you, Christy and Jamie, for joining us today. Thank you, Molly. All right, Christy, so I'd like to start off with you. Can you describe some of the day-to-day privilege issues that arise when you're conveying legal advice to your clients? Sure, absolutely. So first of all, thanks for having me. As part of my work, I do a lot of advertising work, actually. So for food and drug kind of products or cannabis products. And so the clients I'm working with will frequently have an ad agency that they've engaged to do their advertising or work up their labels or something like this. And and my advice is undoubtedly um, going to be communicated not just to the client, but to some degree, they're going to have to pass that on to whatever outside group um, may be doing their advertising or their labels, um, or or it could be, you know, for working, they could also have a communications firm involved or something like that. You know, so it's, I find it's really important to keep in mind as I'm working with them that there are things that obviously changes to copy or or labels may need to be explained to the ad agency or to the communications firm. But the other piece of the discussion around the risks and what happens if we do this, um, what are penalties or something like that is something that needs to stay just with the client. And so I'm frequently working with companies to to educate people, um, whether that's lawyers or sometimes the business people around, you know, what gets passed on um, appropriately to make sure that they're delivering content that is that is compliant versus what stays just with the client company. So that, that comes up for me a lot just on a, on a day-to-day basis. So thanks, Christy. That's really helpful. Can you give some additional examples of any specific third-party communications your clients have or you have on behalf of your clients? Oh, sure. So um, you know, like I said, it could, it could be an ad agency um, that, that the client is working with. It could be um, a communications firm or a, or a PR firm. Um, sometimes those are engaged in a non-crisis scenario, but frequently if there is um, a crisis scenario, it could be some litigation or an investigation of some sort. There will be a, a PR firm that is involved. You know, it could even be an expert that we're working with, perhaps a scientific expert or a medical expert or something like that, where while our interests are aligned in, in trying to you know, work to the benefit of the client, there's not a privileged relationship between me and that, you know, or, or, or our firm, right? And that, and that third party. So those are the ones I most commonly see. So J- Jamie, suppose a firm is planning on retaining a third party and they want to assert privilege over those communications that they're going to have with that third party. Do you think retaining the third party by the firm, is that sufficient enough to maintain the privilege? No, that would not be enough. And it's, it's a question that we get a lot, you know, where the client will be interested in retaining a third party for some 
purpose to assist in an investigation, or sometimes we deal with the PR firms as well. And we're often asked, you know, what, what can we do to protect privilege over these communications? You know, what if we have the, you know, a new engagement letter that comes from the law firm that states an intention to, you know, act at the law firm's direction and assert privilege over the communications. And you, you definitely want a separate engagement with the law firm when you can, and you want a separate engagement letter that specifies that this is for the purpose of um, assisting counsel, acting at the direction of counsel to assist counsel in providing legal advice, whatever the case may be. But that's not going to be enough if there's already, for instance, a day-to-day relationship between that third party and the client. If it's, you know, the PR firm that's already on retainer, if it's an, an auditing firm that does regular audits uh, for the client, um, a consulting firm that's previously um, been retained, it's going to be much more difficult to separate the new engagement from the day-to-day business activity um, that that third party is already engaged in. And the, you know, the client's desire to sort of protect this is often because they're concerned about particular facts coming out that might be embarrassing, but the, the facts are never going to be privileged anyway. Day-to-day business activity by the client is not going to be privileged. Facts aren't going to be privileged. The only thing you're going to be able to protect will be the discussions and legal advice you know, surrounding those facts. So typically what you want to do, even though you might want that separate engagement letter just as a precautionary measure, because if nothing else, it just puts the, the privilege issues on everyone's mind, is that you may want just a very simple factual summary that you will use to work with, you know, any necessary disclosures that, that have to go in either direction to a PR firm, to an auditing firm, to the government, because like I said, those facts wouldn't be protected anyway. And you can have a a very simple stripped down version of just the facts. But then whenever you have a discussion about those facts, that's going to be within um, just a very restricted group of people. Jamie, are there any other considerations that you think about when you're dealing with a crisis response for a company and working with any of those third parties? Um, I mean, typically the challenge when a situation first breaks, that is a crisis situation. And and by a crisis situation, I mean, um, you know, maybe you have a whistleblower who's gone public. Um, So you have usually a combination of, you know, a, a lot of negative press all at once against the company. And at the same time, maybe you have, you know, either federal prosecutors reaching out or government regulators reaching out, but you have sort of the combination of the the board raising concerns, the press constantly calling and and the government to deal with. And so you want to get your arms around the facts very, very quickly, involve all the stakeholders, be consistent in your messaging. You have a lot of different stakeholders from within the client company as well. And everybody wants to be up to date with what's going on, with what what the next steps are, what the strategy is. But at the same time, if you're you're looping everybody in all at once for efficiency, you're obviously gonna blow the privilege pretty quickly. So you will just have to have kind of separate teams divided very quickly and you have to be very disciplined with the in-house counsel 
um, in terms of the, you know, the, the privilege team that's going to come up with the strategy and the next steps, and then how, um, what the other teams need to know will be messaged in a purely factual way. And through, you know, through phone calls, if possible, especially because now we're all doing Zooms or we can share screens um, as opposed to just sending around emails. Not that there's necessarily any magic to the phone call. I mean, that can be explored as well in terms of that, you know, that phone call can be, dis the substance of that phone call can be discoverable, but people just tend to be a little bit more disciplined when it happens over the phone. Uh, once email chains start going around, it's, it just becomes all too easy for somebody to forward or just copy in a much larger group of people. I, I would add something onto that too, um, kind of related to the discipline that's necessary. Um, I have, I have found it helpful in these kinds of scenarios to, um, not just do phone calls or now you can do zooms, but, um, do it at a set time, right? Whether that's once a day or twice a day, because when you have a crisis scenario, people are, are nervous and maybe not, um, you know, they're thinking more about getting the information that they want than about these other, you know, broader considerations. And so that's when they tend to text and, and type and what have you. So I do think it's helpful if there's a set cadence for, okay, we're going to do, there's a morning call every morning at nine. And, you know, that's when people can expect to get their next update as part of the team. And then, you know, you'll get your next one at the following morning at nine. And, and in the middle, you know, let's all try to keep our wits about us um, and think before we type. Um, and I have found that helpful in other in, in, in investigative scenarios um, in controlling both the anxiety of the parties involved um, and the communications and trying to limit, you know, all sorts of things flying around in various directions. I think that's I think that's a great point. And we could also do because we often suggest that the investigation that often follows a crisis situation be conducted in two parts, sort of the factual investigation and a separate component for providing legal advice in response to the facts. So you could also do just sort of in keeping with that dual track on the facts and the legal advice, do the legal update call and then the factual call right after that. So, Jamie, in your view, would the privilege determination change if in-house counsel was leading the investigation and a company had not hired outside counsel to be involved at all? It doesn't determine whether the investigation is privileged. There are a number of reasons we typically suggest uh, that outside counsel conduct an investigation, certainly in a crisis situation, because for instance, if there's going to be some sort of disclosure to the government or interaction with the government, the government will typically view the results of an investigation conducted by outside counsel as more credible. They'll see the, the, the outside law firm as just more objective, possibly more thorough because it has the single task before it of conducting the investigation. So that's going to be a better result in terms of what you want to deliver to the government. But in terms of privilege, it doesn't matter so much whether it's in-house counsel or outside counsel, assuming that the in-house counsel is in a purely legal role. If the in-house counsel ends up performing a lot of different functions and a lot of business functions, 
then there needs to be extra care given if that in-house counsel is going to be conducting the investigation to document it appropriately to make sure that it doesn't appear to be a sort of a dual nature investigation, part business, part legal. That's when the privilege will be jeopardized. But assuming that it's it's properly um, sort of documented, limited, and the communications between in-house counsel and others are properly limited for that period, you can have you know, a, an investigation done by the in-house counsel where the privilege is maintained. But like I said, even though you can maintain the privilege for other reasons, I would still recommend getting outside counsel involved. Let, let me add on to that just one thing. And this, this isn't necessarily specific to in-house counsel doing investigations versus outside counsel, but more just when you have your, your reference to, you know, be sure you document it pro- appropriately triggered for me. One, one um, challenge that I always see in these kinds of scenarios is people, whether whether they're from the legal department or or more commonly elsewhere in the company, you know, thinking, well, if I copy the outside counsel on the email, you know, that they're sending to whomever, and I put at the top, prepared at the request of counsel, or I put at the top attorney-client privilege, then then that should be protected, right? And and the answer, you know, of course, is no. It's not really that it's not really that simple and and that isn't really how privilege works. But I think that any what I've learned from all of this is anytime we have one of these kinds of situations, there's there's a um it's important to take the time to do a little bit of education as tough as that is, particularly in a crisis scenario, so people have a clear understanding of what privilege is and what it isn't. And that we can't just expect that putting that in the subject line of an email actually actually is effective in attaching privilege to something um, or putting prepared at the request of counsel and copying the lawyer is actually effective if you know regardless of what's in the body of the actual email. So I think it's it's an important step and one that you know is certainly not a fail-safe, but may may at least help people think twice about. Am I about to send something that would be problematic if it turns out that it's not actually privileged? Right. I think that's exactly right. And and to add on to that, even though copying outside counsel obviously doesn't make an email privileged, we often do recommend that you copy outside counsel, you know, for the reasons that you just suggested. And also because, um, it, you know, when outside counsel is copied in, it's, it's just an extra check. They can see, you know, why, why are you suddenly copying 50 people on this email? You've, you've lost, you know, this, this, isn't, this isn't a smart strategy here. Um, so outside counsel is just another check to help um, remind everyone about the need for discipline there. And also it helps in the event that you have something where the government is, where you need to do an email review, or let's say you're the, su- the client is the subject of a business search warrant and all of these uh, laptops are imaged, all of counsel's emails are then in the government's possession. You need to be able to to provide the government with some guidance so that those emails aren't reviewed. And it's very easy to just say, okay, Kelly Dry is counsel to this this company, so you should screen off any emails that contain the suffix at Kelly Dry. So there are other reasons that it can be useful to copy outside counsel 
and we, we therefore recommend that you, you do it both so that they're not accidentally produced to the government and reviewed by the government and to have that extra check, but it's not going to make a difference in terms of making that communication privileged. All right, great. So Jamie and Christy, to wrap this up, I want to ask you both, are there any specific best practices or tips that you would recommend to attorneys trying to maintain privilege when communicating with their clients? Sure, I'll, I'll go first. Um, this is Christy. So I think on a day-to-day basis, you know, one of the things I always watch for, um, especially if we're, we're talking about, you know, a new ad campaign or something that is higher risk or, or um, something where we're, we're going after a competitor, perhaps, or that is directly competitive, you know, a lot of times you can get on these calls and there are lots of different people there. You want to be sure you're clear on who exactly is on the phone. And um, because frequently I'll find that, that people from an ad agency have been added in or a communications firm or something like that. And, um, you know, need to be careful about what gets conveyed and making sure that any kind of risk analysis or things that would be, that should be really just limited to the client, um, stay just with the client. And then related to that, you know, I think the point that we were talking about as far as discipline in, in the communications strategy, you know, especially speaking here to a, to a um, investigative or crisis scenario is so important, whether that's a scheduled time for the call or the Zoom meeting so people know when they're going to get their next update or it's having, you know, specific messaging for the legal group versus the advertising and PR group or other experts, um, outside experts that may be involved, ensuring discipline in that. And and then finally, I think training um, is so important, both on a day-to-day basis, frankly, because, you know, we're in the business of, of giving legal advice and we want to be sure that our um, our analysis is, is properly protected, but you know, it's, and in doing that, it's helpful to have clients that understand that. And then of course, it's particularly important in the investigative scenario or crisis scenario that people understand what is privileged and and what is not, or at least have a, a common understanding of that. And then, you know, to the extent that they're copying outside counsel, have an appreciation that that may be useful for lots of different reasons, but doesn't necessarily attach privilege to each and every communication um, where they add their lawyer. So I guess those are my three. And Jamie, what do you think? Um, I, I agree with those and would just reiterate that even though the engagement letter is not going to be a magic bullet in terms of attaching privilege, it is one of the things that you want to be careful about in terms of a separate engagement letter with the law firm and the third party making clear that that third party is working under attorney direction and that the purpose of the work is to assist the lawyer in providing legal advice that there is an intention to maintain the privilege over the communications and then that the communications proceed accordingly and are faithful to the terms of that engagement letter but even while you do all that of course still keeping in mind that there are going to be some things uncovered in the course of the investigation that won't themselves be privileged. So you want to do what you can to protect the discussions around that, but still realize and just recognize that you may have to have separate tracks going forward in terms of factual updates versus legal team updates. Thank you, Jamie and Christy, and thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to this episode. We'd be pleased to answer any follow-up questions surrounding attorney-client privilege and investigations, as well as help you navigate these issues as they arise for your company. 
Contact details are in the show notes. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to this episode. For additional information on this and other topics, please visit kellydry.com. Kelly Dry has podcasts available through your podcast provider.